Hello. It feels like 1979 again. I remember it well. Trade unions on strike. A winter of discontent. But no beer and sandwiches at number 10 this time. The Prime Minister's door is firmly shut. It's going to be a cold, cold Christmas. But things are heating up in the BBC News studios. On the Today programme on Tuesday, Mick Lynch, head of the RMT Trade Union, and Michel Hussain, presenter clashed when she asked him to put a number on how much his members had suffered financially from going on strike. Mr Lynch accused Mr Hussain of, and I quote, parroting the most right-wing stuff you can get hold of on behalf of the establishment, and it's about time you showed some partiality towards your listeners to working-class people in this country who are being screwed to the floor by the attitudes and policies of this government. In other words, he wouldn't answer the question. He was followed by a government minister who didn't answer the question put to him either. As I said, just like old times, if in doubt, blame the messenger. But how good is the corporation's reporting of the myriad industrial conflicts we're now faced with? And how does it compare to yesteryear? I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Jones, who spent 30 years as a BBC industrial and political correspondent until 2002, and so covered such minor altercations as the miners' strikes. Nick, welcome to the podcast. What did you make of that exchange between Mick Lynch and Michel Hussain? Well, I think you're right. It's attacking the messenger. And, um, of course, some of the reviews of that exchange are already pointing out that um, Mick Lynch is becoming an Arthur Scargill because, of course, Arthur Scargill, and you mentioned the miners' strike, one of his tactics, too, was to attack reporters. And I did tackle Arthur Scargill about it one day because I I, I had to drive him somewhere. I better not uh, reveal too much about that. But uh, let me say this, that uh, I said, why do you keep attacking us? Why are you calling us the piranha fish? Well, he said, you eat one another, you journalists, he said. And look, he said, you've got to understand that attacking journalists is very good for my members. They hate you lot. And if I attack you, it's good for the tribe. It's good for my people. And of course, who else did that? But Donald Trump. So uh, you can see there um, <laughs> there are lots of parallels that one can draw about attacking journalists in that way. Oh, you can. And I have fond memories. Well, are they that fond of Norman Tebbett's um, particularly effective tactics in that way? But so both sides are trying to frame what's going on in a way most advantageous to them. And it's obviously the journalist's job to try and get behind those. Do you think it's increasingly difficult to do that? Are you disappointed when you listen and watch about the questions that aren't being asked? Well, I'm disappointed on two fronts. Uh, First of all, we have to accept that the trade unions have become as effective in controlling the message as managements have, as politicians have. And as you know, it's very difficult to get a government to shift the line. It's equally the case with employers and trade unions are very much following that, that model. So it's very hard to get people to speak out of turn. And it's very hard to get the principal uh, protagonist, in this case, Mick Lynch, uh, to depart from the line. But of course, the other area where I am very disappointed is that we don't have the degree of knowledge among the industrial reporting core of journalists that we used to have in the 70s and 80s. And of course, our knowledge would be fed into the presenters, and they'd be able to ask much, much more informed questions. So yes, I'm disappointed on two fronts. 
I mean, I think I would be able to do an interview, frankly, if I knew it was going to be five minutes long uh, and I would be able to block and I'd be able to divert and I'd be able to avoid asking the questions for five minutes. But that's when you need the industrial correspondent to come on afterwards and really explain to you what's happening, what's going on. Yes. Because the interview itself is becoming almost a sterile form in many ways. What you want is the reporting. And that's where you... You think there's a problem. You wrote a book which said, uh, The Lost Try, Whatever Happened to Fleet Street's Industrial Correspondence? Um, do you feel like saying whatever happened to the BBC's Industrial Correspondence? Well, of course, we have just now seen in the BBC they have reappointed an employment correspondent who has been in post Zoe Conway for the last few months. And, uh, you know, it's a breath of fresh air to hear uh, the BBC introducing an employment correspondent because, of course, we and I can remember the days, uh, you know, when the BBC had a team at Labour and Industrial and Employment Correspondents on radio and on television. And, of course, every national newspaper did and every local newspaper did as well, and regional newspapers. So we were acquiring uh, an insight which fed up the line um, to the national press. Uh, With the BBC, I think that is the disappointment, because, of course, we have to sort of spool back and remember what happened, you see, Roger. Of course, we had our heyday in the 80s. Then, of course, because of the decline in trade unionism, the fall in strikes, what happened? What happened then uh, was that so much of industrial and business uh, and uh, industrial and employment news was taken on by the business correspondents. And more recently, it's been taken on by the political correspondents. And I don't really think they've got that inside knowledge um, that they should have. And I think it shows because, of course, you just described that discussion with Michelle Hussein. Now, an informed post Michelle Hussein um, sort of inquest with an industrial correspondent would have got to the heart of it. How much are these railway workers losing in pay because of the strike action? What is the effect? Because, of course, there's been a, a recent ballot among the network rail staff, and that's shown that about a third of the workers are perhaps prepared to accept the payoff. So you can see there are some very key questions that could have been asked by Michelle of an informed correspondent and we might have began to get to the bottom of what's really going on. And not least, whether it is about straightforwardly about pay or to what extent it is about working practices. Yes. And, of course, we have this absolute paradox, I mean, which the government... Uh, railways are supposed to be privatised. Government is not supposed to be running the railways. But here we're back with government versus trade unions again. I mean, I remember... I'm not sure it was Norman Tebbett, but somebody senior in the Tory party saying, for God's sake, don't privatise the railways. It can't be done. The Conservative government pushed that through, and they're now in in this sort of situation where they're not responsible, but the public will hold them responsible. That's right. I mean, the the whole of rail privatisation, I mean, just to sort of explain that, was that was the last act of John Major's government before Tony Blair took over. And the Conservatives said that they were determined to get that through because it was seen as the last big privatisation that could be achieved. Of course, what it's ended up doing is creating something like 30 separate rail companies, all individually having to negotiate with the rail unions, with the train drivers and with RMT. And of course, they have been picking them off and it's been sort of bonanza for the rail unions because they've been able to negotiate agreements and push them up and up and up, uh, up and down the various companies. So 
when you come to industrial relations, it's a complete mess. But look, to get back to your major point about the information as to what's really going on, you see, what we lack, Roger, which is so distressing to me, is that each of the BBC's regions would have had an employment and industrial correspondent back in the 70s and 80s. So would the local newspapers. When I was on a local newspaper, the Oxford Mail in the 60s, we had three industrial correspondents. Now, what we would have been finding out is what is the actual position on the ground. We've seen those shots of those big rail depots where all of those trains are parked up there, but we don't hear any of the voices, do we, of what's happening out um, at these railway depots. It's the same with the postal dispute. We don't really know what's going on because you're right, it's as much about changes in working practices as it is about pay. And I don't think we really have any understanding um, of the shake-up that the managements are trying to impose. You know, you've only got to think back to the miners' strike or to the steelworkers' strike and the restructuring that took place then. Well, of course, there hasn't been comparable restructuring in the rail or in the postal. And that's why these two disputes have come to a head in this dramatic way. Well, of course, BBC News would say, uh, it, it, or rather would say off the record anyway, look, let's be realistic, we're having to make cuts everywhere. Uh, we can't have the correspondence we had, the numbers we had before. And it's at that point you think, oh, well, BBC governs as was, but BBC board, where's the trade union representative there who would say, hold on, you're doing plenty about the city, but you're not doing covering this properly. That's well, right. there isn't one. I mean, in the past, you and I remember people like <laughs> tough old guy called John Boyd or Tom Jackson or people like that. But today I've just been through the board. There's nobody representing the trade unions. There are a rather large number of people uh, representing the city, shall we say. The chairman made his money in hedge funds and the newly appointed deputy chairman had a similar career. So it's it's very top-heavy, the BBC board, in terms of people who understand about the commercial world, if you like. That's right. But there's nothing there about the trade union N- No, world. and of course we have to remember you know, historically what happened. So if we come to the late 80s, of course most of the nationalisations have ended up in privatisations. Trade union membership in those state industries, of course, has fallen to nothing, and you've got, instead of 12 million members, just 6 million members, you have a dramatic uh, fall in the amount of strike action. And of course, when it got to the end of the 80s, industrial journalists like me were told quite clearly, you know, within the BBC, Nick, get a life. It's over. We don't want all this trade union news, this industrial news. We don't want to know the ins and outs of it unless the strike action we're not interested. That seemed to be the mood of journalists. And I must say, it wasn't just in the BBC, it was across the news frontier. That was what news editors were saying. And of course, it it played precisely to Mrs. Thatcher's revolutions, because of course, uh, what happened was that so much of the news coverage went on to things like personal finance. Uh, Do you remember the popular share (laughs) and all of the coverage that that got? So we were really sidelined. I think that was a tragedy. And we're now, I think, in sort of news and information terms, we're paying a terrible price because we don't really understand what's going on. As I said, in these big, um, uh, you know, in in British Rail, we don't really understand the mood of the men there. We don't really understand the mood of the postal workers. And of course, this comes back to one of your opening thoughts about the trade unions themselves are very smart. It's very, very difficult, you see, to get the sort of quality, I call them, quality vox pops that I could get. 
I could get in the 80s, I could go to factory gates, I could go to workplaces and talk to people. Now, of course, one hand, the unions are very much against it. They don't want people speaking out of turn. And secondly, of course, if you're an employee in a big organisation, you've had to sign on the dotted line that you won't talk to the news media. Otherwise, you could lose your job. So it's very, very difficult for the news media, very, very difficult for radio and television journalists to actually get what I call quality reaction from the Vox Pop interview that we used to do when we used to go around and talk to people. And of course, the other thing happening, that a lot of people involved in disputes can use Twitter uh, and can put out their messages directly to the public, but also in a form yeah. in which they won't be cross-examined at all. Now, often in these circumstances, uh, when there's a dispute, the BBC says, oh, well, the opposition, what does the opposition say? And of course, this again has interested me because I remember, you will remember, the absolute anguish of Neil Kinnock during the miners' strike, where he didn't want... Arthur Scargill to succeed, not least because Arthur Scargill hadn't taken a proper ballot of his members, but also he didn't want to see the miners defeated. And so he was, he couldn't, he could almost hardly say anything, and you could almost physically see on his face the anguish that that was causing. Well, come back to today, and Keir's Keir Starmer, who thinks finally, after a decade or so, Labour under him can get back into power, the last thing he wants is to be portrayed as a, a, almost an unthinking defender of the trade unions and the Daily Mail, the Daily Telegraph will certainly be wanting to push in that direction. But it is the dog. I mean, the Labour Party at the moment is, is the dog. The opposition is the dog that's not barking. Yes, I think we have to sort of unpick that a little bit, Roger. Of course, the horror for Keir Starmer just now is that out of this, you know, winter of discontent 2022 are going to come images which are going to be hanging over the Labour Party in the future. Just think, you see, of what happened in the 1978-79 winter. We had, of course, the pictures of the rubbish piling up in Leicester Square, uh, of the coffins piling up unburied on Merseyside. Now, images like that. Another very famous one was of uh, cancer patients coming out with their hospital blankets around them, appealing to nurses to come back to work. Now, those are the sorts of images which have been used again and again by the Conservatives to portray what life would be like under a Labour government. So you can just imagine the concern that there is within the Labour Party that out yep. of this Christmas... But it's a bit, yes, I can see that it's a bit thin this time there, because the problem... This this time it's not being the Labour Party that's been in power for a large number of years, it is the Conservative Party. So, it is. so it's a very tricky thing, isn't this one? It on is. the one hand, it's what we're watching, therefore, is a battle for public opinion. Well, we're watching to one extent, to some extent, how long can those who are going on strike stick at it, particularly in terms of the rail dispute. But we're also looking at the battle for public opinion, where presumably the Conservative Party thinks, ah, this may be a way out of our difficulties. Yes. We can remind people of the past. Don't give in. We've got the images you've talked about. We'll get them. We're going to stick this out. Is this, is this how you see it playing out over the next few weeks? Well, I thought originally, you see, uh, and I was struck by the way that uh, Rishi Sunak as prime minister, the initial weeks that he spent, he was very careful not to get involved in attacking union barons themselves. And of course, he was very keen to hark back to the way that he worked with Francis O'Grady, the general secretary of the TUC, the Trades Union Congress, how they worked together on constructing the furlough scheme. So uh, I think... Dude, that was Rishi's during Covid, yes, to almost... Two During years ago the, now, yes. 
Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. But he was very keen to work on the fact that and, and to highlight the fact that he could work with the TUC, that he could work with the CBI. Therefore, it wasn't until literally a week ago that he finally fell off the perch and attacked the unions. That was at Prime Minister's questions when he attacked Keir Starmer for being in the hock of the union barons, of the trade union paymasters. That, of course, is still a charge. But of course, he also threatened that there would be tough legislation. So we've now got the position where the Conservatives are, as you rightly say, I think they're prepared to tough it out. But the difficulty for them is that, as I said, these strikes, we've got 12 unions involved, we've got a sort of uh, advent calendar of strike action. It's a dangerous time because, I mean, who knows exactly how this is going to turn out. Let's take the nurses, for example. At the moment, the opinion polls suggest that the public supports the nurses. Yes. But there will be... And, of course, people always die in hospitals because of accidents and other things. But there will be in the next uh, few days, perhaps, always, people, a photograph of someone who has died because, brackets, according to the particular press, of the strike. And nurses will, the longer it goes on, nurses in particular, I think, will come under intense pressure. So this is a... It's very difficult to call this, isn't it? And the only thing you can be pretty sure about is it's not going to stop tomorrow. No, I I think you're right. I don't think it's going to stop tomorrow. I think there is a head of steam. And again, we have to sort of think back what happened in 78, 79. You see, Jim Callaghan had been insistent um, that the 5% pay policy should uh, uh, sort of continue. It was, of course, thrown asunder by groups like the Ford car workers and the lorry drivers who um, bashed through and got, you know, 17% or whatever. And of course, there was this head of steam that it was very, very you know, hard for him to stop. Of course, after the 1978-79 winter of discontent, after Jim Callaghan's defeat and Mrs Thatcher's election in May 1979, union leaders told me that, look, if only Jim had given us another couple of percent, that would have been enough. That would have been enough to get it uh, sorted. One wonders now what's going to be the outcome. Well, let's just think. There is a new general secretary. Uh, Francis O'Grady is stepping down. Of the the Trade Union Congress, yeah. Yeah, yeah of the TUC. He's Paul Nowak, and he takes over at the beginning of January. Well, it would be a wonderful thing for him to sort of say, I'm the new TUC General Secretary. Can I step in somehow and um, sort of mediate in this? You remember there was another body called ACAS, the Advisory Conciliation and Arbitration Service. Now, are they going to be dusted down? Could they play a part? Well, that'll only happen if both sides want an agreement. And yes. you're suggesting to me, and indeed the way I read it, it is at the moment uh, not really or not at any price and i do have have heard conservatives say you know this may be our salvation that's right we defeat the trade unions inflation comes down a little bit uh, etc and if they can deal with the migration problem here we are and so uh, it's particularly interesting to watch uh, the labor party now doing all of this you and i are out of the business um but I was never as well informed as you were. How frustrated are you day by day about the questions that aren't asked and the stories that aren't written? I mean, do you, do you ring up the BBC and say to them, all, why are you doing this? 
No, I don't. But I am absolutely uh, sort of frustrated and annoyed by the fact that all of the knowledge and experience that we built up has just been completely dissipated. I mean, I could go back to the Brexit referendum, for example. Now, I was fascinated then, you see, because, of course, we didn't have industrial reporters. We don't have employment correspondents. I would have wanted, if I had been an industrial correspondent during the Brexit, I would have been out trying to find out what was the real sort of view among the car workers, for example. Were they in favour of it? Weren't they in favour of it? What would happen? What would be the impact on their industry? And of course, as we've gone through now, this wave after wave after strike action, I'm just so sort of frustrated that I wish I could get out to one of those big, you know, there are these big postal sorting depots where they're having to come to terms with this change in post where 60% is now parcels and only 40% is left and it's declining, uh, where they want them to work on Sundays, uh, where on the railways, they want the train drivers and the railway staff who currently work on Sundays only on overtime uh, to accept seven-day working. Uh, These are fundamental shifts, but you don't get any real indication, Roger, of a reporter having gone out and actually picked away at this and found out what is really the the sentiment among the people in these great big new workplaces. I'm convinced if I'd been on the beat, that's what I would have been trying to do now. I would be trying to come back with a package from a big postal sorting depot, uh, from a big railway yard to explain what the workers there were really thinking. Are they up for for change or aren't they? You know, what is the real position? And all we get, unfortunately, are are these Punch and Judy interviews, you know, with Mick Lynch. It was Grant Shapps, do you remember? Or Mick Lynch and, and now poor Michelle Hussein on today. And I think with these Punch and Judy interviews where, you know, everybody's sort of going at one another, we just don't really get that insight which we should should get. So I feel the broadcasters of today, it's a disservice. We're not providing the level of background and information which we could provide. We know we could provide. And if only we had the resources, I think we still could provide. Now, the BBC, of course, will say we haven't got the resources. They'll say over the last 10 years, they've lost something like 30% of real spending power and news is cutting back. But we've also seen local journalism yep. local in, in print, or not disappear, but be significantly in retreat. We've now had the cuts in local radio. What it will require is somebody at the heart to say, BBC journalism actually needs more money, not less, and we need more feet on the ground, a bit like the bobbies, to actually report what's going wrong. We're doing well on analysis on the whole. And indeed, I think the analysis now is much better than when I was a programme editor and so on but we're doing less well in reporting. Yes. We do need that sea change, don't we? That's right. What what we're doing is we're lacking the -the on-the-spot reporting and assessment that would have come. Because, you know, if we go back to the big miners' strike, we're using that because it's sort of, it's a rod on my back. We would have heard, wouldn't we, of reports coming in from the Welsh coal field, from the Scottish coal field, from the northeast, from the Midlands, and we would have begun to assess, you know, that you remember it was all about getting miners to return to work. They were the new faces. And of course, that's what finally ended the strike when Mrs. Thatcher could declare that half the men were back at work. Now, there must be similar sort of senses, sensations happening up and down the country in these big postal depots, in these big railway yards. I'd love to be out there digging away to find out what the real response was. And I think if we could, we'd be able to serve our listeners and viewers much better. 
Well, Nick Jones, I do hope uh, that uh, some BBC editors listen uh, to this podcast and will immediately get on the phone to you and get you out there. You needed quite a few warm weather. No, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot of, lot of clothes, mind you, in this particular weather. <laughs> <laughs> Our thanks to Nick Jones, uh, the former industrial and political reporter at the BBC. Uh, and that's it for this week and the current series. We hope you've enjoyed our interviews over the last 13 weeks and uh, that you'll support our journalism by subscribing for just £1.99 per month. You'll find a link to subscribe on our website and in the description of this programme and your podcast platform. And we won't be cutting you off entirely. There'll be a couple of stocking fillers over the next few weeks, which we hope you'll enjoy. We'll be back in January. So please do let us know who you would like us to interview in the next series and the questions we should be asking. You can get in touch on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at Roger Bolton at mastodonapp.uk. Or you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbeebwatch.com. And if you didn't know already, this podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quingenti. It was a good egg production. I do hope you have as good a Christmas as possible. Goodbye. <laughs>